Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. We picked back up last week with our study of Romans 11, and we looked at verses 11 through 16. And now this morning, we'll, we'll start again with 16, just to have that image fresh in your minds. And then we'll continue through from 16 all the way down to 24. And most of this is going to be concerned with a metaphor that Paul introduces in verse 16 when he talks about the, the root and the branches. So hear the word of the Lord. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Please speak to us through it. In Christ's name, amen. So we're going to be talking about trees this morning. All sorts of trees, literal trees and metaphorical trees. Uh, the kind of tree I want you to think about, first and foremost, though, is a genealogical tree. My grandmother, in the last few years of her life, became interested in genealogy. She would get online and research uh, the family's ancestors. And every so often, she would get in touch with me to let me know her latest discoveries. So one day... She got in touch with me and let me know, guess what? You are descended from King Henry VIII, which was astonishing because I had assumed that the whole point of British history was that the Tudor line had died out entirely, but apparently not. I was descended from that great king. Not only that, she calls me later on and says, you are descended from Charlemagne, the great emperor of uh, the Franks. I thought, well, that's pretty cool. That's interesting to know. Thanks. And then she called me and let me know that I was descended from the Egyptian sun god, Ra. And I said, you know, I don't think you can be descended from mythological characters. And she kind of laughed and says, well, actually, you are. And so, yeah, fantastic. I was skeptical about all of these discoveries. But what was interesting was she would always give me these accompanying documents that she had printed off the Internet, you know, to show the truth of the research, and any of you who've gotten into genealogy know that the way that generations are represented, like if you're going to draw a picture, 
and show how the people are connected, you do that in the form of a tree, like a family tree. So you have like, you know, the, the family as the branch, and then the, the different brothers and sisters will kind of crop out as branches from the, the trunk, and then you'll have littler branches, little twigs, as more people are born. And it just goes on and on and on as a tree to visualize generations over time. Now, I know you've come across the genealogies in the Bible. You know, he begat him who begat him. When you read those passages that sometimes seem endless and you wonder, what is the point of all of these unpronounceable names? You ever thought what it would be like to take all of those names and put them on a tree? To visualize those long lists as a kind of tree that keeps growing outward and outward from its root, extending generation after generation, all connected back to the point of origin. It's an image like that that Paul has in mind when he writes about the olive tree here in Romans 11. Now, throughout the Bible, you find trees all over the place, trees constantly, real, literal trees, uh, also symbolic trees, uh, interesting trees. Probably my favorite tree story in, in the whole Bible is the story of Absalom, because it was always used to me as a kid as a reason to get a haircut. Because Absalom didn't get his hair cut, and his hair was so long that it went by the tree, he got stuck in the tree and was just hanging from the tree until someone came along and slew him, which is King James for, for killed. And you don't want that to happen, so get your hair cut. But there are a lot of fascinating tree stories in the Bible, but if you think about it, there's actually a bookend at the beginning and the end of the Bible having to do with trees. We go to the book of Genesis in the garden. There were trees in the garden, two trees in particular, that are really important. There's the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the one you don't want to eat from. And there's the tree of life. If you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. But if you eat from the tree of life, you will live. Now, of course, they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result, we human beings find ourselves in a fallen state surrounded by death. But what's interesting is, if you flip all the way from Genesis to Revelation, you go to the very end of the Bible, the tree of life that was there at the beginning is there again at the end. In the New Jerusalem, the tree of life is there once more, and its fruit is for the healing of the nations. So when you think about the Bible and and all the story that it tells, the beginning and the end, the tree of life connects it all. Of course, there are other trees. There are symbolic trees. We've been looking at the Psalms over the last few weeks. You remember Psalm 1, famously, a righteous man is compared to a tree planted by the water, a deeply rooted tree that doesn't die even in droughts because its roots are sunk so deep. Other kinds of symbolism, not just in poetry, but even when you think about the the temple, the tabernacle, the stuff that was in there. You imagine the lampstand. If you picture a menorah and you have like these three curved branches on either side and then one in the middle, so you have seven total and each have kind of these, these uh, bulbs of light at the end symbolizing a tree. Uh, a tree stylized. Israel. The nation of Israel is also described by the prophet Jeremiah as a tree. 
specifically as God's olive tree. You look in Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 16, the prophet says, The Lord once called you a green olive tree, beautiful with good fruit, but with the roar of a great tempest, he will set fire to it, and its branches will be consumed. So this is a word of of warning, of judgment. The prophet says, you were once God's good olive tree, but because of your disobedience and rebellion, he's going to come and he's going to destroy your branches. They will be consumed. And this is the olive tree that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 11. It's interesting Jeremiah is not the only prophet who talks about God doing this kind of pruning work. Isaiah also talks about it this way. He talks about God lopping off the branches of the tree uh, in Isaiah chapter 10. If you look at Isaiah chapter 10, just towards the end of the chapter in verse 33, Isaiah writes, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. So again, Paul gives us this image of a tree, an olive tree, but a tree whose branches have been cut off by God in judgment. And that's what you see pictured here in the words of the prophets. And there's a lesson for us in this. In God's family tree, there's no place for there's no place for the great in height. There's no place for arrogance, and there's no place for pride. If you look at our text right at the beginning in verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, he's referring here to the idea that the Gentiles have been grafted into God's olive tree. Israel was a tree. Some of the branches broke off, but those branches were replaced. God replaced them with these Gentile believers that Paul is addressing here. What's interesting, though, is this actually works the opposite from the way grafting works in in olive horticulture. I did some research on this because obviously anything I say about the natural world, you're not going to take seriously because I know nothing about this stuff. But but experts who will tell you that, that the point of grafting branches onto an olive tree is actually to get a wild root to produce cultivated fruit. And you do that by grafting in cultivated branches. What Paul is saying is exactly the opposite. It's not the cultivated branches that will tame the wild root, but rather the wild branches are being given life by the cultivated root. It's the other way around. And we shouldn't be arrogant and prideful for the branches that were broken off. Remember, we saw last time the attitude to have towards those who have rejected Christ. The, The way that Paul sees his fellow ethnic Jews who have rejected the Messiah, not with contempt, not with anger, but with hope and with love, and certainly not with arrogance. He says, do not be arrogant toward the Jews who have not yet acknowledged the Messiah. But why not? Why can't we be arrogant? He says, because they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. The reason that they were broken off was their unbelief. You stand fast, he says, because of faith. So continue to believe. 
It is not merit, but faith. And that should lead to pride. Not to pride, but to fear. That's the idea. There's something contrary. There's something that doesn't fit. Pride doesn't fit with belief. Arrogance is incompatible with faith. So much so, so much is our salvation an act of God's power that Paul goes on to say that God could graft back in those branches that he has broken off. That he has the power to think about it. If God was able to take you, who had no right to the life that comes through this tree, and graft you onto this tree, if he had the power to do that, then of course he has the power to take the natural branches and graft them back in, which is why we should continue to have hope for those branches and not lord it over them, not judge, not condemn, not have pride or arrogant feelings towards them. Because bringing them back into the tree would be an easier thing than it was to bring us in the first place. God can do one, he can surely do another. So what God is encouraging here is humility. Humility. An attitude towards others, even others who have rejected what we believe, that is humble, not proud, not arrogant, not vain, but reflects the faith that we've been given in Christ. Now, Paul says to drive this point home something interesting in verse 22. He says, God's severity should keep us humble, and his kindness should make us grateful. Now listen to these words in verse 22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. So here, Paul's talking about God's justice and God's mercy. Right? And he's saying God's justice is a kind of severity. It's just, it's the right thing for God to do, but there is a harshness to it when you are standing on the side of those who have fallen. When you see what we justly deserve as a result of our sin, it is severe because it's thorough. It's complete. It is a just judgment. Mercy, though, is kind. When God shows mercy, it's an expression of his kindness towards those who believe. It's interesting, too, that when Paul talks about unbelief, like unbelief is the reason why the branches are cut off. The reason why a branch is cut off the tree is because of unbelief. And then he says at the end of verse 22, otherwise you too will be cut off. So he's giving a warning. This is a, a severe warning. Don't do this. Otherwise, you will face the same consequences. But if unbelief is what gets you cut off the tree, he's warning you against unbelief. He's warning you against having the same kinds of doubt, let's say, rebellion that led to the branches being cut off in the first place. But what does that unbelief look like? Well, the word he uses is continuing in his kindness. You do not continue in his kindness. You might think of this as living in the light of God's mercy, shaped by it, being humble rather than vain, because Christ humbled himself to save us, forgiving others rather than being unforgiving because Christ has forgiven so much from us. 
simple stuff, but it points to a deep truth that we should be formed and shaped by our salvation, by what Christ has done for us. It should change the way we live, the way we treat other people as well. It's a lesson, too, when he says to to look at the severity. It shows us that people who manifest arrogance and pride are saying something about themselves. They're saying they shouldn't presume that they will continue in God's kindness. Whatever you profess, whatever faith you claim to hold to, if the fruit of that faith is arrogance and pride, you have no reason to be confident that you are standing in the grace of Jesus Christ. If the life that you live is one that judges and condemns others, you live a life of superiority. If you look around at the people that God has placed in your life and you see you are so much better than everyone else around you, if that is the the thought of your heart, then you should examine yourself. You should examine yourself because grace does not produce such fruits. It produces kindness. It produces humility. Now, a lot of times, we don't want to dwell on the severity of God. We don't want to think about God's judgments. You read a passage like this, and and branches were grafted on because others were lopped off. And if you're one of the branches that was grafted on, the last thing you want to think about is the branch that was lopped off. That's kind of the way we are. Right? We like to imagine that, that everything we have in life, we have earned. That we owe nothing to, to anyone. That we have built ourselves up by our own strength. And anything that reminds us that maybe you had advantages. That maybe you had what others didn't have. That maybe you didn't just get there on your own. We don't like to think about that stuff. And so... For the best of reasons, oftentimes in the church, as people who know God's grace, the last thing in the world we want to think about is the severity of God's judgment. We'd just rather not dwell on that because it seems like the only kind of are the ones who want to exalt themselves over the fallen. People who like to hear about judgment and the condemnation of sin are the people who think they're better than everybody else. So we tell ourselves. But Paul points to another value, to meditating on the severity of God. God's severity keeps us humble. It shows us we are not different from those who are subject to his judgment. God's severity should keep us humble, and his kindness should make us grateful. But that's only possible when you're connected to that nourishing root that Paul talks about. If you go back to verse 18, Paul says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Now, in the metaphor, what is the root? We looked at this last time and asked that question. uh, If the root is holy, then so are the branches. What, What does that mean? What's the root? And if you study the the kind of argument up to now, so you know what it is that that Paul's using these symbols to describe, it seems to be that the root that he has in mind is connected to 
uh, the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Uh, Although not to them individually, but to them symbolically as recipients of God's covenants. So the root you might think of, and this makes sense if you think about the olive tree as a symbol of Israel, the root signifies the covenant out of which all the life of Israel flows. It was started with this relationship with Abraham, and then it proceeded from there generation after generation, giving life to everyone who came after. They were sons and daughters of the covenant, so that for generation after generation, they thought of themselves, even in Old Testament, or sorry, in New Testament times, as sons of Abraham. Sons of Abraham. So the root is that covenant relationship. Being supported by the root would mean receiving life through the covenant promise, which is so far so good, but there's something more to it. Because if you think about it, the more you think about the the metaphor of what the root does here and the root nourishing, you realize that that we actually need a, a slightly better or different or richer answer to the question of what the root is. Because it is not the, the covenant promise that gives life. It's not the promise that gives life. It's the fulfillment of the promise that gives life. And if you think about that, you realize that the root ultimately points to someone else. Someone before Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In order to answer the question, who, of course, we have to look at another tree. said already that at the beginning and the end of Scripture, there are trees planted, the tree of life. But in the center of the Bible is another tree, the cross upon which Christ was crucified. We don't think of it that way. We don't think of it as a tree because it had been cut down and and shaped into an instrument of execution. But the authors of Scripture and the evangelists in the book of Acts when they talk about the death of Jesus, we'll often describe it that way. In Acts chapter 5, verse 30, and again in Acts 10, 39, Jesus' crucifixion is described as, as Jesus being hanged on a tree. They're guilty of hanging him on a tree. So that way of seeing the cross is there in Scripture, understanding the cross as a tree. Of course, in Deuteronomy 21, we read that The man who is hanged is cursed by God. And we understand why they would have seen the cross as a tree upon which Christ died. He died for the curse of sin. But as you think about the cross as a tree, you start to realize there's something complex there. Because on the one hand, he's on that tree because of the consequences of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because our first parents ate from that tree, because all of us are guilty of sin, Christ died on the cross to atone for our sins. So in the cross, in that tree, you see a kind of echo of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil from the garden. But out of the cross, out of that tree, flows all our life. All the life we have, all the grace that we have flows like a river from the cross of Jesus Christ. 
So the tree of life, also pictured there in the cross of Jesus Christ. This tree is at the heart of Scripture, at the heart of God's plan of salvation. Now, this way of thinking of the cross, it's not just a New Testament thing. It is anticipated by the prophets of old. If you go back to the book of Isaiah, remember in Isaiah 10, we saw that image of, of God lopping off the branches. Right? God is, is basically cutting away at Israel, lopping off the unfaithful branches. That's in Isaiah 10. But if you keep reading to Isaiah 11, verse 1, you find these words. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. He's prophesying Christ. The tree has been chopped down where the stump has been left. Out of that will spring a shoot, which is Jesus Christ. But then it gets even more interesting if you keep reading. All the way to verse 10, you get through these messianic prophecies. And in verse 10, he says, In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. A messianic prophecy anticipating not only the bringing in of the nations, but also the rest that is to come. But notice the changing of the words. At the beginning of this prophecy, a shoot coming forth from the stump of Jesse. But by the end, Christ has been transformed. The root of Jesse. The root. Not a shoot from the stump. But, but the roots, the source of life. That's the significance of Christ. And he said it himself in John 15. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And then he says this that should make us think of our text. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown in the fire, and burned. tree of life, a tree that promises life eternal, a tree that we see at the beginning of the story that returns to us at the end of the story, a tree that we find pictured in the cross of Christ for us as well. It always comes back to the cross. It always comes back to Christ. If you long for more depth and understanding in your faith, if you want to have a a more profound appreciation of your faith. The irony is the the deeper you dig, the more Jesus you find there. You never dig so deep that you get past the discovery of the cross. We're always arriving at the same place, always back to the tree of life. For us now, our lives must be cross-shaped lives of discipleship. Lives of love and self-sacrifice, which means no more arrogance, no more pride, but rather a desire to seek the good of others and to sacrifice for others. If we have life from the roots, life from Christ, then the fruit that our lives should produce are humility. Grace should be hanging from our branches.
Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.